She was a level-headed dancer on the road to alcohol And I was just a soldier on the way to Montreal Well, she pressed her chest against me about the time the jukebox broke She gave me a peck on the back of the neck These are the words she spoke Blow up your TV Hey, Happy New Year. Welcome back and welcome to the Man Child Podcast. Uh, you know what we're about. It's about struggling well. That's what we do. All right, what does that mean? Uh, you're going to, whatever you do, if it is of value, if it is a worthy pursuit, uh, it's going to be really, really, really hard. And you can cry about how hard it is, and you can be sad boy about it, or you can do it well and wear it well and treat people well uh, while you're struggling while you're hurting um, you know it's an undervalued trait is to be able to hurt the right way you know what I mean you don't lash out at your kids and kick the dog and scream at your wife because you didn't get your way because a lot of the times all right unless you're the Amazon guy or the electric car guy you're not gonna get your way a lot of the time how do you deal with it who, do you, who are you while that happens? All those good things. That's what we mean when we say struggle well. All right? Went on a little bit of a tangent there. I hope you guys are doing good. Let's get right to it. Here's our guest. All right? David Joy. It's just amazing that I get to talk to these people. All right? Maybe you've never heard of him. Maybe you have. Uh, he is an author. Uh, Edgar Award nominated. Uh, he's written several novels. Where All Light to go, uh, the weight of this world, the line that held us, and his most recent uh, that I'm reading right now, When These Mountains Burn, all right? He is a Western North Carolina native uh, mountain man, lives up, up there on the hilltop, and self-describes his uh, content as grit lit. Just what does it mean uh, to be in Appalachia, modern day? Uh, what is happening to mountain culture um, in the eastern side of the United States? In uh, in his what he knows, where he grew up, and what has happened to these people, and um, from uh, and uses uh, his novels and fiction to paint a picture of a landscape and a people and it's really really cool to get his take on uh, just kind of where we are as the United States where we are as the region that he is from that is Appalachia what does that even mean people say that where is it uh, exactly and we get into just you know what 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 are we doing to each other how do we treat each other and uh, what is the right way to do it? Great outdoorsman. You can read some of his articles. One of the best articles I've ever written, or excuse me, I've ever written. I'm such an idiot. He, I've ever read, is what I'm trying to say. Um, in Garden and Gun, check him out. He wrote an article about hunting turkeys in Florida, and it's just awesome. We talk about that. Um, we talk about uh, hunting and fishing, and uh, we're actually... And I'm going to hold him to this. 
Uh, we're going to go down to Carolina and go turkey hunting with him this spring. It's going to be one of our first uh, actual visual pieces of content going hunting with none other than David Joy. You're going to enjoy this conversation. Just a really cool, really wise, rounded uh, man. And I hope you take something away from it. If you like what's going on, you know, give us a like, give us a share. All right. Tell your buddies about it. Tell the folks at work on your lunch break, check out the Man Child podcast and give us a, give us a rating because apparently somehow in the ether of the stratospheric uh, atmosphere of the online world, it helps people find it better or something if you put five stars next to it or however many stars you think we've earned so far. Okay, let's go. What you know about me? What you know about child? What you know about struggling well through this life? We're better together. What you know about men, child? I can get up on the top of the ridge. Uh, I can get a call out from up there in case of an emergency or something, but, uh, the wind's blowing about 30 miles an hour and it's supposed to be below 30 tonight. So I wasn't going to go stand on the ridge lines. <laughs> I hear you. I hear that. So you're in, are you in North Carolina? I am joined by David Joy, the author uh, if somebody has been living under a rock, they're not familiar with you. How do you describe yourself as a writer? What you do, and then we'll kind of go from there and get the get the backstory here. Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm a novelist. Uh, is how I how I make my living. As as far as uh, how I would uh, define that, as far as where they shelve it, they typically shelve me and in uh crime fiction or, or somewhere in that kind of genre uh it's literary fiction it's southern uh it's all set very specifically um in in appalachia uh you know in the mountains where i live in north carolina uh but yeah it's similar to writers like daniel woodrell or, or larry brown or william gay bonnie joe campbell um and so, and so I, I guess, uh, there's, there's typically crime elements involved, but, but I don't really consider it crime fiction. I, you know, I, I just, uh, grit lit, I think is a, is a good way of thinking about it. Grit lit. I like that a lot. Uh, you, you have such a very distinct, uh, style and voice that, uh, see, I'm in, I'm in West Virginia. I live in Huntington, West Virginia. I work at Marshall University and uh, grew up in uh, south southwestern Ohio. My whole family's from eastern Kentucky. Went to school at Moorhead State. So this this Appalachian region, it uh, it I'm very familiar with. Spent a lot of time in and uh, the Rust Belt. And you, the first time, I'll be very honest with you, I, I'm very late to the party here as far as discovering you as a writer and came across the article you wrote in garden and gun just because i just recently uh our other co-founder of Manchild got me really into turkey hunting and it was this the 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 best 
article on turkey hunting I've ever read <laughs> because it's exactly how we like talk about that's what that hen is like. And, and yep. it just, it was, I, it really resonated. And then I really kind of started doing my research and I'm like, we got to talk to this guy. But I mean, it's obvious that your, your characters and your, your work, it's so lived in because you actually have lived it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I think I'm, I'm very, uh, centered to place. Uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't know much else. I've, I've lived in North Carolina my whole life. Uh, I've lived up here more than half my life. Uh, and, and that's just the God's honest truth is I just don't know anything else. Uh, you know, and, and so I think where a lot of writers might, uh, spend a whole lot of time trying to create setting or trying to learn a place, uh, that they're not familiar with for me. Uh, that's always been easy in that when the characters show up in my head, I know, I know exactly where they're at. Uh, sometimes down to the tree. I mean, I, I can quite literally, uh, see where they are. And as far as the nature, right now that, you know, I think early on that's, that's hell, that's really what I wanted to do. Uh, you know, when I first, the first book I wrote was a, was a memoir called growing gills. Uh, and at the time I wanted to, you know, I wanted to be like John Girac. I wanted to make a living, uh, you know, right and fly fishing um and and as you know i still uh you know i, I think about the writers who in, influence me most and that i who i still just love reading and it's, it's people like thomas mcguane uh or writers like pete from uh I, I love reading gray's sporting journal I, I i still think they're putting out some of the best sporting literature year after year um, but yeah, it, it's, it's odd that I found my way into the novel, uh, you know, because, because really, uh, I started out as a, as a creative nonfiction writer and, and very specifically nature writing and, and wanting to write sporting literature. Well, I, that was the next, to me, there's two things that are virtually seem impossible to me. And it is writing a song out of the air that didn't exist, the sound of it, the melody, the words, the story, and writing a novel that's not based off of something that already exists. It's just to pull all of that out of your head and dump it onto a sheet of paper to where it makes sense and lines up. And by the end of it, people genuinely care about these people that don't exist it, it seems like one of the hardest feats that the human being attempts to do. Why did you find yourself drawn to that? Uh, well, I think that I grew up, uh, you know, amidst a very, very rich storytelling tradition. Uh, you know, I had a, I had a professor once who, who told me that she thought that Southerners were very lucky and that we grew up in, in, amidst very rich oral storytelling traditions and you know looking back i think she's absolutely right you know i grew up surrounded by story uh you know my grandmother was one of the best storytellers i ever listened to uh but it, whether it was it was listening to her or whether it was uh you know sitting in the living room and listening to aunts and uncles uh, you know they would i grew up in an environment where children were to be seen but not heard uh, you know, you were you were expected to be in the room and you were expected to sit there quietly and listen. Uh, and at the time, you know, you wanted as a kid, you wanted to pull your hair out. But uh, I think I think what it taught you was it taught you to listen and it taught you the value of story. 
and and so I think um, you know as far as how I found my way into literature, I think it's that. Uh, you know, I wasn't a huge reader as a child. You know, I can count the books that I loved as a kid on on two fingers. Uh, you know, Gary Paulson's Hatchet, uh, oh, Walter yeah. Walter Dean Myers' Fallen Angels. Those two, those are the only two books that I really remember uh, reading as a kid and loving. And so it wasn't that I had this great love of reading as a kid. Uh, it was just that I was surrounded by story. Uh, and, and so as I got older, I, th- I think that really took hold. Um, uh, and, and I, I found value in that and, and it was something that I wanted to try to do. It, and so you, you, you went to Western Carolina. Was this, was it, were you starting this process to being a, a novelist in, in school when you, when you were done? I mean, you're relative, you're a young man. And it's you, you when you think when I think about a novelist, you think about this just old guy with a big long white beard that stays up in his cabin, and you know it's like how does yeah. this guy exist and whatever. But like you're you're doing it. Like how did you make? I, I'm obsessed with people's origin of how it came to be what they're doing, and to do this full time, and this is how you make your living. How does how does that happen in today's world? Yeah, well, I, uh, well, I I always wrote, uh, and so by the time that I got to college, uh, I'd probably written a thousand pages. Uh, none of it was any good, but I'd probably you know written a thousand pages. Uh, and and when I went to college, uh, I didn't I didn't necessarily know what I wanted to do for a living, but I knew that I wanted to write. Uh, and somewhere along the lines I'd heard, you know, if you, if you want to write, you need to be reading. And so I studied literature, uh, and that was, uh, you know, that was kind of my gateway in, in that I had some really good professors start steering me in, uh, some really valuable directions. And, and what I mean by that is, uh, you know, some of that early stuff, I, I don't think I, I didn't have my footing, uh, I didn't have my voice, and I can really remember two singular events uh, from college that that really transformed uh, kind of my writing. And and one of them was listening to the the novelist Silas House, who's from Kentucky, uh, give a reading, and and he sounded like he sounded like my family. He sounded like a cousin of mine. Uh, he sounded like my cousin Rusty, and and uh, it was the first time that I put two and two together that a novelist didn't have to be this snooty guy in a wool coat with elbow patches, uh, kind of like what you're describing, you know, smoking a pipe, whatever. Uh, it was like, this guy sounds like me. Uh, and then the other event was, was Ron Rash handed me a copy of, uh, William Gay's short story collection. I hate to see that evening sun go down. And when I read those stories, it was like this, these are my people, uh, these are my places. Uh, and it was the first time that I'd ever read someone and realized that I could, uh, tell stories about, uh, the people in places that I knew. And so, you know, I, I spent a, a whole lot of time, uh, I probably wrote another thousand pages in college. I wrote growing gills, uh, that, that first book while I was in college. Uh, and again, I, none of it was any good. I mean, that, that first book, <laughs> Uh, I mean, that first book was traditionally published, you know, it, it, it wasn't like, uh, 
you know, I self-published it and sold it out of the back of my car or something. It, it was traditionally published, but looking back, that book was no good. Uh, and, and truthfully, I think I was just a, a slow how, study. How, how did you come to term? Like, how did you come to that assessment that you're like, this is no good? Like, well, what makes you look back and think that it's, it's overly written for one. I, I, I think I can go back and look at, uh, I can look at sentences now and, uh, you know, what, what took me 20 words to say, I could have said in 11, uh, you know, I could have dialed it back. Uh, it was overly written. It was flowery. Uh, some of the perspectives were, were, uh, immature, uh, at the, at the same time, you know, I was writing a memoir and I was 25 years old. And, and, and so, right. uh, yeah. you know, a lot of the perspectives just hadn't had, uh, time to really, uh, mature in the way that maybe they needed to. Um, but, but I can also see things that I was starting to do well. Uh, you know, I was starting to write landscape really well, uh, I think I had a really good understanding of, of place. I had a really good understanding of, of, uh, you know, how to make, how to make pages turn. Uh, and so I, th- there were things that I was starting to do well, but, but truthfully, I mean, it, you know, those first 2000 pages or however many pages it was, uh, it, it none of it was very good. And, and, and I don't think any of it was very good until maybe about five years after um and then there was this very uh I, I started to notice a shift in the writing and it was like i started to recognize that i was capable of doing things on a page that that a lot of people aren't uh and and then it then it just you know i, I put in more time and more time uh I was, I was i was just a slow study i think but uh eventually it all started started to come together uh, and, and, and that was, I was out of school. I was working at a, at a newspaper, uh, I worked at a newspaper for, I don't, I don't know how many years, maybe five years, uh, left there. I was working somewhere else. Uh, when I wrote that first novel, I was, I was working two jobs. Uh, I would, I'd get up at eight, I'd go, I'd work till five. I'd get off at five. I'd be at my second job at five thirty. Uh, I'd get off at nine thirty, and I'd get home at ten, and I'd write basically from eleven to four. Uh, and I, I did that. Uh, you know, I, I wrote that first novel over the course of maybe a month and a half. Uh, and and so during that time period, I like I'm I said, wrong, I, but that's 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 very fast, correct? Oh yeah, yeah, that's that's incredibly fast. That that first novel, uh, it just kind of it came out in a giant purge. Um, and really, I've never had a book do that again. Um, but but yeah, that first novel just kind of came out in a, in a in a giant you know purge. And and I wrote it that time period because that's the only time I had for one. Uh, the other thing, and and this is true of of all my writing, is is that it was that there was an undeniable and unrelenting compulsion. die if you don't do it um and and so like when people hear hear me say you know the hours i was writing that makes no sense to them um but but i couldn't imagine doing anything else i i felt like i had to do it Mm. um and and i think that's you know always really been the case with with especially with the novels 
uh, is that when they're going really well, it's a, uh, you know, there's just this unrelenting compulsion to, to put words on a page. I heard John Prine say that one time. It's like sometimes he can't think of a worse task to be tortured with to sit down and write a song, and then when one comes to him, he can't get it out fast enough in, in that way. And and there's no way that anybody can put in that kind of work and cover that kind of ground that you did if you do not become absolutely enamored with it. The, you, yeah. Your characters... Uh, there's so many different faces of things that I'd like to cover here, and I got to do it in a hurry. I, I don't want to take up your whole night, but you, you got you, you you capture an a region that I'm I'm so very fond of, and the people, and I don't, and outside of the region of Appalachia, there's probably not a more misunderstood group of people. Uh, yeah. From the rest of the nation, uh, and and I don't know how if you if you do book tours and that kind of thing, it's probably much different with the COVID situation. But like, how do you explain Appalachia to people that have no idea what that place is like? I, th- I, I think when you get outside of the region, uh, people like to talk, and and this is true on a you know a national level. I was reading something in a in a magazine today where some uh i don't know if you can cuss on here or not you can bleep it out some asshole from new york or somewhere had had went down to west virginia and he basically you know wrote the same old story about you know some forgotten cold town in west virginia that we've heard a million times uh when when people talk about appalachia who aren't from this place or uh you know who have no connection to here they talk about it as if it's as if it's a town uh, they talk about it as if as if it's a singular place that oh yeah I've been to Appalachia before you yeah. know as if it's this place you drive through, uh, and the truth is that you're talking about uh, a place that's it's it's 13 states, uh, it's 420 counties, uh, it's 205,000 square miles, uh, you know it, it's something like 40,000 square miles bigger than the state of California. Um, and, and so think about taking a place like California and trying to reduce it to a singular thing. Yep. Uh, you know, think about the difference between between San Diego and, and San Francisco yeah. uh, versus Los Angeles. Uh, and so, and so I, I think I'm always very quick to say uh, when I write about Appalachia, I'm writing about a very, very specific part of this place because the truth is I don't know anything about coal country. Uh, nobody here does. Nobody in Western North Carolina knows anything about coal. Uh, this isn't coal country. Um, you know, a long time ago, this was, this was timber country. Uh, we had, and, and, you know, until the past couple decades, we had paper mills. Uh, you know, that's what this place was. Uh, and, and so I don't ever try to speak about Appalachia in terms of the region as a whole because it's not something that I feel like uh, I can speak to. But what I can speak to is is Western North Carolina and more specifically uh, this very specific county, Jackson County, North Carolina, uh, you know, because this is the place that I know. And so um, – you know, when I'm writing about this place and these people, I'm, I'm writing very specifically about that. 
Um, at the same time, you know, I, the hope is always um, that you capture the humanity in such a way that, that there becomes a universality, uh, you know, that the, that the universal is contained within the particular. Uh, you know, I, I, James Joyce, they asked him, they said, you know, why do you write about Dublin? And just about Dublin, and he said, because if I can capture the heart of Dublin, I can capture the heart of all cities in the world. Uh, and I think that's absolutely right. Uh, you know, Eudora Well, you, you know, the, the way Eudora Welty put it, you know, was uh, one place understood helps us understand, all, you know, all places better. And I think that's absolutely right. So, so um, as a writer and as an artist, I think what I'm trying to do is capture humanity in such a way that uh that people relate to a group of individuals that they otherwise may have completely dismissed uh and and i think that's the goal i i think if you can get to that humanity and you can make them real uh then all of a sudden the story's not just an appalachian story or not just a southern story uh but it speaks to a to something greater than that well i think there's something something that that ties all humanity together is is hurt or pain or or trying to basically pick the pieces of your life up together and it's very easy to if you're not familiar with parts of of this region that you you dismiss it or or whatever and then when you get to know somebody face to face i've always said it's it's hard to hate up close and yeah and you know it you see this 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 such a splitting type of uh divisive narrative with the with this recent election and you watch you know west virginia turned red about as as soon as they said it's election night and yeah. if you're in new york city you just you you dismiss it and then you come in if you were to drive to west virginia and you were to meet these people, and even if you can't wrap your head around how somebody that is impoverished and uh, and and has always been generationally, how someone can rally behind a guy that's been a billionaire his whole life, and if and and you don't disagree, and maybe you are right that they're insane for supporting the guy, when you hear why they're doing it, it's hard to just still ridicule the person that's not the answer you know and, yeah and i think yeah. like in your newest book uh there's a character that he's he struggles with a with a drug habit and that absolutely obliterated that's probably the one of the unifying modern things that of appalachia where i grew up in hamilton ohio it's it was a paper mill town all the mills went under and it just became decimated with addiction. It's and, and you know heroin is it's nicknamed Huntington, West Virginia is uh, the heroin capital of the world. And it's it's yeah. something that as these places that were from the industrial revolution or whatever that were put on the map, and then the, the world changed. Uh, it's almost like these people just got left frozen in time. And I think yeah. it, the way the way you're capturing that this is still. A, a, an issue here and now and you capture that i think it's very important for people that don't know what's going on on the ground yeah yeah and and i think you know 
that this last book uh, was not a lot of things, but, but one of the things that it was about was uh, the death of a culture. Uh, you know, the death of mountain culture. Uh, and I've I've said for a long time that I thought we were one generation removed uh, from from complete extinction, and and I wholeheartedly believe that. I you know I don't think that this place and these people and this culture lasts another thirty years. Uh, it's just that? not you, going why. Uh, primarily, uh, outside, you know, outside influence, uh, you know, it's, it's rural gentrification. Uh, these people are being priced out and erased. Um, but, but I think with that book, as far as the opioid crisis, I, I think one of the connections, they came for the coal when the coal was gone, they, you know, uh, they came for the land, uh, and, and with the opioid crisis, uh, there's a reason that Appalachia has experienced that in the way that we did. And it's because we were systematically targeted, uh, by Purdue pharma. Uh, and, 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 and that's not something that's up for debate. I mean, it's been settled in a courtroom, uh, when, when the Sackler family filed for bankruptcy, one of the, you know, some of the terms were that they had to put money back into the communities that they targeted. And, and that was, uh, you know, almost entirely Appalachia. Uh, why did they target Appalachia? I, I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. Uh, but I mean, it, it's as simple as looking up. Uh, you can you can look up maps of where those drugs went. Uh, you know, the, the dispersal of, of those prescriptions and these mountains show up on the United States like a bruise. Uh, they they were just poured into this place. Uh, and I, and I, again, I don't know, uh, other than that, I think you had a, you had a very large group of disposable and invisible people. Uh, it's the same reason that, that, you know, you never hear anything about, uh, you know, Flint, Michigan, uh, you, you know, until all of a sudden they are, there's literally not a drop of water to drink. Uh, they'd been poisoning those people for decades. Uh, and it's because they were disposable and invisible people. The rest of the world didn't pay attention to them. Uh, you know, that would have never happened in some gated community. Um, you know, the, the, it, it just doesn't happen. And, and so I think when you've got a, when you've got a group of people that are, uh, you know, largely invisible, uh, to the rest of the country and to the rest of the world and, and, most assuredly uh invisible to the people in power uh, they become they become you know something entirely disposable and and so I, I think that probably you know is a is a primary reason for for why they were targeted i always had a have you read familiar with the book dreamland no no so dreamland was written by a um Los Angeles Times writer that was trying to follow the cartels to figure out how um, heroin just re-exploded uh, as of as of recently in the last ten to fifteen years, and it took him in a whole different um, direction to just across the river here in Huntington to Portsmouth, Ohio, which is believed to be the first pill mill in the United States where these doctors would just push extremely harsh 
narcotic pain killing drugs to yeah. people out of work or injured at laboring type jobs and and it just dispersed from there and and it was all the way down to where you can trace it till how it became taken advantage of by the Mexican drug cartel it's a fascinating story but mm. it's like you said in invisible people it was Somewhere along the line, I, I felt like he feels like the writer does um, that we made an agreement that pain isn't something we should have to deal with, and so just make it go away. And this is, and so you just hand pills to people, knowing that th this stuff is so powerful that you can't get off of it by yourself. And if yeah. you, it's just, it blows my mind that, and, and it really resonated when you said that this has been a targeted region and group of people for centuries, because there's always been a resource that someone from somewhere else has gone after and used these people in that region and then just left them literally for dead when the, when the resource has been used up, you know? Yeah. Uh, and a lot of we you, you, we turn that into political rhetoric with, you know, Joe Biden wants to shut coal mines down and and Donald Trump wants to keep them open. And really, they're going to do what they were going to do regardless either side. And yeah. They're, yeah. They're either not they're not as big as they were in the 60s and 70s and, and on back into the 20s and 30s. Steel in Pittsburgh is not the same as it was. It's just and no yeah. matter whose office is that's not going to change it. But people and not these people benefit from people arguing about that and it's just another yeah. way to use these people that's been and it's been really disappointing to see this whole election cycle to see that in another form of using these people up it happened again yeah and, and well i you know i was thinking about this today I, just the fact that uh you know the the primary reason that you that you keep people divided uh, especially the way that we have in this country is that, uh, you do not want a unified finger pointing in the direction that it should be. Uh, because the truth is, the truth is what should happen in this country is very similar to what happened during the French revolution, which is that you had a, you had a very, very select group of people who had taken and taken and taken and taken until Nobody in the entire country had anything, which is the point that we're at. When you've got somebody like Jeff Bezos who can increase his worth by $80 billion during a global pandemic. Yeah. Uh, and Somebody's when you've got something screwed. that grotesque, <laughs> yes. The only, and the only answer for that, uh, is, perhaps as radical as that seems, is an event like, like the French Revolution. That's, that's the only way something like that changes. Uh, the difference in this country is that they keep us uh, at each other's throats, uh, so that so that we never even realize who we need to be pointing the finger at. Uh, you know, we're 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 too busy, you know, sitting here boxing it out with each other, uh, and they're la they're all laughing all the way to the bank. There's no doubt. That's a that's a profound statement. So, you're you're up. Uh, and the outdoors, that's, has this always been a part of your life, the pursuits, hunting, fishing? 
Uh, yeah, especially uh, the fishing, the the hunting. Uh, you know, people in my family were small game hunters, and so my uncle always had rabbit dogs. They always ran rabbits. Uh, you know, my father hunted squirrels. Uh, they they were small game hunters. So the big game hunting is something that's that's come on more recently. Uh, but fishing, uh, you know, it, I grew up in a family that that if you could walk, you could, you know, they handed you a rod. Uh, I, I grew up in a right against a cattle farm, and and there was an old farm pond down in there. And truthfully, I mean, there were years that I fished every day of my life as a, as a child. Uh, and so the fishing, uh, I, for a long time, that was, that was all I did. Uh, now I, it's, it's a lot more evenly divided. Uh, when there's not anything to hunt, I fish, but if, if something's in season, odds are I'm going to, I'm going to be, you know, chasing it in the woods. The article, uh, that I talked about earlier in garden and gun, the hen that rules the woods uh, you were chasing Osceola turkeys down in Florida. Yeah, which, yeah, which, yeah. That's one of the uh, is one of the 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 prized species of the bird. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and and I think uh, you know is uh, it it's how how very regional that bird is. I mean, and it, it, most of them, most people in Florida would say until you get below whatever that state road is that divides the state um that you don't really get into true osceolas until you get south of of that state road uh so so you know you think about osceolas you've literally got the bottom half of florida where you can hunt them versus if we're talking about easterns hell you can hunt them things you know all over uh rio grands uh rio grands are pretty limited uh, but, but this, again, you can hunt them in, in, you know, I don't know, probably five or six states. Miriams are spread out even more than that. Uh, so, so the Osceola, I think is, is, uh, the most, you know, uh, region, region specific and just kind of isolated, uh, subspecies of, of wild turkey. There's, I, I, I'm going to read out my favorite part. The old girl had a voice like she'd spent a lifetime chain-smoking Winston 100s in a pool hall. If turkeys coughed, she'd have hacked and gagged and spit something into a Kleenex, then slipped the tissue back into her purse without missing a note. That I know that woman. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, her name's Tammy. Yes. Tam- yeah. I, th- I, think, I think later on you said she, she'd stab somebody in the middle of the night at a Waffle House about a woman she could take or a man she could take or leave. And I just, yeah. I, it stopped me in my tracks. Nobody writes outdoor pursuit liter- uh, literature like that. And it, <laughs> it just... You're not taking yourself serious. You're not taking the hunt too serious. And it was so refreshing to read somebody that had just this really razor sharp sense of humor and applying it to such a specific thing that people, they get so tripped up with just talking about the Latin name of the bird or whatever. And it just makes it almost nerdy. Sometimes I feel nerdy talking about the outdoors and this was just, it was just a fun lived in read that I really read. Cause it's like how I would describe (laughs) with one of my friends and hearing about and and the fact that you weren't talking about how successful you were made me like it even more yeah 
And that's because I wasn't. <laughs> you know, those birds absolutely kicked my ass. Uh, I went with a, a buddy. Um, his name's Raymond Bunn. He, he's older older than me. Uh, he owns a uh, gun shop in in this in this county, uh, and he's been a gunsmith his whole life. Uh, but if there's anything Raymond knows, uh, it's, it's birds, you know, and especially grouse. He, he was a, uh, I mean, he knows more about grouse than, than anybody I've ever encountered. Um, but, but he's a hell of a turkey hunter. Uh, and he went with me down there and that opening morning, uh, we got in on some birds and I mean, they, they didn't come into a call. They just showed up out of nowhere and they were on top of us. And, uh, I, there was a tiny window. Uh, and I mean, we were, it was like hunting a damn jungle. Uh, and there was this tiny window and I just blew it. You know, I just, I just completely blew the shot. Uh, and that was the only shot I had, uh, the rest of the trip. And it was because man, we, we got in on those, we got in on some good birds, uh, and, and that hen would come in and it was over. I mean, it was, it was, it didn't matter what you did. It was over. Uh, you know, she just, she just owned us. And, and so, you know, at the time you're sitting there and you're like, this magazine has, has paid to send me down here. Uh, and I've completely, you know, <laughs> goofed. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, I'm sitting there trying to figure out what to write about. Um, and I, and I had a couple different ideas, but you know, uh, then it just became, you know, the more I thought about it, that hen uh, and anybody who's chased turkeys knows that hen, that's the thing is that yes. that's not an individual experience. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, you know, that sometimes, uh, you know, that's turkey hunting. Uh, and that's, and that's what I love about it, uh, is, is, uh, you, you know, there's nothing you can do on a, on a pot, uh, or, or, you know, on a wing bone or anything else that's going to change a gobbler's mind when, when, when the girl's standing there, <laughs> I mean, right. she's going to, she's going to take him wherever, wherever she wants. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's such, it, it's like, a, I mean, it's the cousin of a velociraptor for crying out loud i mean this thing <laughs> it doesn't seem like it's supposed to still be here on the earth like when you're, yeah. you're in walmart that night and then the next morning you're interacting with this dinosaur bird and it just yeah. it blows my mind that they exist and that you know one of the things that i really appreciate um and some other guys that we've had on here like chef jesse Griff griffiths is, is uh, he constantly talks about you know, hunt what's near you. You know, don't get yeah. so enamored yeah. by the hunting show where you, you dull sheep in the Brooks Range of Alaska. Like, that's not a reality for the majority of the human race. You're not going to get to go on yeah. that trip. But there's turkeys on that ridge down the street from you. And you can yeah. go have one of the best times of your life. And it's going to be really hard and really, really fun. You can go share it with your best friend. And there's, there's, it's hard to compare to find a more rich experience than that oh yeah that, i it, i mean i i would love to go chase uh sheep but when i if i could do a single thing uh for the rest of my life if the if the turkeys were acting right 
uh, and, and honestly, what I mean by acting right is if I could, if they were just gobbling on the roost, I don't, I don't, once they're off the roost, if they want to shut up and we just got to play the chess match, that's all right. If they're gobbling on the roost, I would do that every day for the rest of my life and, and be completely satisfied. Uh, like if I, if I hear a gobble in a video, I smile, uh, until you, until you're in the woods, right at the crack of dawn, you know, just, just lights, just barely breaking. And that thing just screams. Uh, if, if that, I don't care who you are, you're, you're going to have, it's going to be an emotional experience. Even if you wasn't just a hunt, even if you weren't hunting, uh, like you can, you cannot experience that and not feel something. Uh, yeah, hell I would do that. I would do that every day. The, the rest of my life, uh, yeah, it's you know, a, they, it's a visceral experience to say the least. There's no, doubt. Oh yeah. And they, they started gobbling here early this year. Our, our season, uh, here doesn't come in until mid April. Hell, they was gobbling in, in late February. And as soon as they started gobbling, I didn't miss a sunrise. I got up every morning, made my coffee before daylight. And I went and set up there on the ridgeline above the house and listened to them uh, every morning. Uh, and I would, you know, in, until they, until they finally shut off at the end of the season, uh, I'm not, if they're gobbling, I ain't missing it. Uh, you know, I, it, it just, it, I love it that my, much. My, my buddy, who's, a, he's the guy that really introduced me to you. He, he's literally was reading when these mountains burn in his truck yesterday. He's, if, when he hears this, he'll just be fist pumping in the air because he's old, old Heath Brown is a is a turkey he's a junkie when it comes to yeah <laughs> no, well I I don't want to speaking of which you have a new you got a new book out yeah and it's uh it's when these mountains burn um what's it all about uh I think you know looking back I think I was uh I really, it, it was a balancing act of, of wanting to tell a story of an old timer, uh, who was watching the very last of his culture, uh, vanish before his eyes. Uh, and it was balancing that against, uh, the reality of the opioid crisis. Uh, and, I, and, and truthfully, it, it, both of those kind of themes arose just because they were, uh, inignorable. Uh, you know, I was living at the time, I, I was living in an old farmhouse on a, on a cattle farm, uh, and about a eighth of a mile, maybe up the gravel road from me, I lived in this sharp bend in a gravel road, uh, was the dope house where, where basically all the heroin in the county was moving through this place. Uh, and there was not a single day that those people weren't, uh, walking by the house, weren't in the yard, uh, weren't knocking on the door asking if I had a sewing kit. Uh, you know, you'd drive down to the post office and you'd step out of your truck and there'd be 50 syringes in the parking lot. Um, you know, you'd, you'd go to Walmart and there'd be syringes in the parking lot. Uh, I watched them pull a body out from under the bridge where a guy had gone under that bridge to hide and shoot up and overdosed and died. Uh, you know, it, it just became inignorable. Uh, and, and so, uh, really I think it, it was about, uh, trying to write a book that captured those two realities. Uh, I said it during, during 
this place was burning down quite literally at, at, during that year. Uh, we had, we had tremendous forest fires, uh, basically from late September to December. Uh, and a lot of people might be familiar with, with Gatlinburg, that, you know, when Gatlinburg burned, uh, and, and so the, the truth was we'd been, we'd been experiencing those fires for months at that point. Uh, and I wanted to set it then because I, you know, uh, the character of Raymond Mathis, I think he feels like he's witnessing the end of the world. Uh, and I think as far as modern times, that year felt like that in a lot of ways, uh, especially for this place. You know, the world was bur- burning down around us. Uh, we were experiencing uh, one of the one of the craziest political cycles uh, in American history. Uh, up until that point and and so (laughs) (laughs) watch this yeah 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 hold my beer yeah uh yeah yeah. so i i I think i was really wanting to do wanting to write a book about that and and those you know a lot of my books have dealt with addiction uh and drugs and poverty um and in the background of all of those books there have been this this uh idea of of mountain culture kind of disappearing uh, but i wanted to write a book where that really became uh kind of the the forefront uh, because I, I we're on the cusp of it being gone uh this place is it can't it can't withstand much more i mean these people are being priced out and at an unfathomable rate uh, you know and that's it's, that's it's, that's people it's the Asheville Airbnb on the weekend that's what we're talking about is this or or what is it well well Jackson Jackson County for one has has always had a had a very large uh luxury home resort type of uh atmosphere at the southern end of the county but it's it's largely become you know a, a retirement area for a lot of very very wealthy people uh especially moving from florida uh but it's uh you know it's not uncommon at all here to to have a four or five million dollar house and then people living in in tar paper shanties that they've inherited uh, there's that type of, there's zero stratification of wealth. Uh, you know, it, it just, it's one thing right up against the next. Uh, you know, we've got some of the highest end golf courses and, and golf resorts in the country. At one point we had, we had five of the top 10 private golf courses in the country were located just in Jackson County. Um, and so you've got extreme wealth butted up against, uh, extreme poverty. Uh, and at this point, it, it, it's that, but it's also uh, that they've peddled tourism to us for decades, and and they they never once uh, were willing to recognize that that was an equally extractive economy, and and so you know you've got all of this money dumping into this place, um, and and the the prices have just gone through the roof. Uh, you know, people can't afford to live here anymore. The, the jobs, uh, the jobs that are available to, to working class people here, uh, cannot pay, uh, you know, for the land or for the housing. Um, and, and so we're becoming bedroom communities. I, th- I think is one of the things that's happening now. Uh, you know, they did a survey. I read a survey recently that a real estate group had put out and it was basically asking people how, 
how long they were willing um, to commute in order to live in a place like this. And these people were willing to, uh, if you, if you're willing to commute two and a half hours, you could work in Knoxville and come back here. Uh, you could, you could work in Atlanta basically and come back here. You could work in Charlotte and come back here. Uh, and I get it. Uh, I mean, these people are spending that much time in fighting traffic in those cities anyways. Uh, and, and truthfully, as, as you know, if we get broadband connectivity in a place like this, and, and especially as people are more and more able to work remotely, uh, you'd have to be you'd have to be out of your mind to live in one of those places when you could live in a place like this and work yeah. from home. Uh, and, and so I get it. Um, you know, I, I, I think the history of all places is a story of displacement. Uh, and it just so happens that right now it, it's my people that are being erased. Well, David, I, I, I can't thank you enough. And you're some of the best, um, you know, a lot of times with music and literature, it, it's, it's a fashionable thing to say that it, the best of it has already happened. And uh, I have to disagree with, with that statement when it comes to people like yourself because you're doing some really incredible work and I'm, and I'm glad it exists and I'm glad you're telling your people's story. Oh, I'm glad you've enjoyed it. No doubt. Hey, David, uh, thank you for being on the Man Child Podcast. Of course, man. Come down here and we'll turkey hunt. <laughs> that would be incredible. It's an open invite. Don't you be surprised if I show up. All oh, right. yeah, come on. That's an open invite. She was a level-headed dancer on the road to alcohol. And I was just a soldier on the way to Montreal. Well, she pressed her chest against me about the time the jukebox broke. She gave me a peck on the back of the neck. These are the words she spoke. Blow up your TV. Throw away your papers, move to the country, build you a home, plant a little garden, eat a lot of peaches, try to find Jesus on your own. I knew that.
move to the country, build you a home, plant a little garden, eat a lot of peaches, try to find Jesus on your own. <laughs>